the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. And a very good afternoon. Welcome to the Country Hour broadcasting today from a shed uh, in a paddock at uh, Wallenbean and uh, some crops just to my left there looking absolutely fantastic. I gather that... uh, the, the sort of got out of jail a bit, Tim Fuchs. Tim Fuchs is here from Orange. He's joined us today. And uh, in this region, they were pretty thankful of that uh, last lot of rain that we got. Yeah, just been speaking to some farmers here who are counting the cost in a positive way uh, when you count the cost uh, between 30 and 45 millimetres in that rain band that came through last week. Uh, absolutely um, a, a, a godsend, really. And um, you and I both travelled out here today. I came down from Orange via Yass and uh, you came of course from Yass here and uh, to, to here which is about an hour or so and uh, incredible uh, the, the landscape how it looks at the moment. Lush and green it is certainly one of the highlights of the state at the moment mm. um, and uh, yeah there's canola that is uh, that is in bloom. There's an awful lot going on around here and that rain last, last week was a godsend. Mm. I gather we're not talking about the whole state. We're still talking about, I think, uh, um, 40% of the state, those crops are still struggling. But those, and, and they were saying, some of the people here were saying, uh, thank goodness for that subsoil moisture to sort of get, if they could get it going, it, uh, it really helps at the end of the year. Yeah, just the importance of the last three years just to get people through uh, the situation that is being faced at the moment, particularly in more northern parts of the state and around the southeast as well. But there are patches in, in, in I know, noticed looking at the combined drought indicator last week that uh, parts around Orange even have um, are starting to weaken uh, in terms of the amount of moisture around. So, uh, yeah, we're going to learn an awful lot over the next hour about um, ways, <laughs> I guess, that um, that particularly croppers can sort of look at, look at ideas and hear about trials and research that's going on. Yeah, the research that's actually happening here is about, um, uh, you know, getting the maximum, both hyper-yielding crops and trying to, how you do that, but also that translates into um, drought years as well and sort of, uh, you know, all the technology and the, the gene breeding and all that sort of stuff, you know, putting it into the paddock and, and helping in those less than ideal years that uh, that we have seen. And in, in fact, um, I, earlier on today, I spoke to Graham Sandrill from the GRDC. They've been involved in this program for four years and I caught up with him earlier. Now, we're here today at the farm at Wallenbean and the crops, they're looking a bit thirsty aren't they but um, I guess the, the high yielding program what we saw from that is in previous years the previous two years to this one was when it really sort of came into the fore. Yeah absolutely what we're really looking to do is set uh, yields up for potential hyper yields so trying to get water use efficiency as high as possible so for canola you might be targeting you know that stretch goal of 14 kilograms of grain per millimetre transpired we're trying to obtain that in these high rainfall areas as best we can and I guess the thing is that um, one of the people we were talking to earlier was saying, you know, if you'd asked me about getting these sorts of hyper yields in, you know, the drought years of 2002 and 2006, when you're looking around this part of the world, you would have thought, I'm, I'm dreaming. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a whole range of factors that have allowed us to leverage into these hyper yields. Genetic improvements with hybrids has come a long way. Our understanding of the nutritional requirements of hyper yielding crops and how we need to protect yield. 
so those things have combined to really allow us to reach a new plateau, a new frontier in canola yields. And that's, I guess, when we're talking about dry years. You know, you learn a lot from the, the wet years that can help you conserve moisture for the dry years like we're having now. Yeah, absolutely. The farming system is so important in trying to set crops up. So a lot of growers around here are using pulse crops and then on the back of the pulse crop they're doing canola. You get some extra nitrogen from the pulse fixing um, the nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen, and you also get a little bit of water that's left remaining from the pulse crop that you capture in the canola crop. That extra value is captured in the canola crop, which is substantial these days. And a lot of people here have moved from grazing or a lot of mixed farming to more cropping. So there was a, a bit of a learning cur- curve for farmers in this region generally anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Since the 90s, we've transitioned from... Um, a livestock-based farming system here through to much more of a grain-based system. And so in that journey has been a lot of learnings. And these growers initially turned to their cousins in medium and low rainfall to, to undertake learnings. But some of those learnings don't bring about the hyper yield. So this project was specifically targeted at growers in high rainfall areas to leverage into hyper yields. So that means you turn from a good year into a fantastic year in terms of um, pricing and um, production, you know, and you're trying to tap into everything. Yeah, absolutely. We, we know what we're about is converting water, nutrients and light to food. And we weren't doing a good enough job of the water part of that conversion. So we needed to really step up. What is it that we need to do to get to that extra yield? And we've been able to add a tonne to a tonne and a half to average yields around here just through better understanding of the management criteria needed. And But this year, not ideal, let's be honest. I mean, uh, people were saying they've had about half their normal rainfall. Yeah, this year was really interesting. We started with the full profile. We went through to the winters okay and then we hit a bit of heat and dry and that hurt us a bit we had a bit of flower drop and then we caught that rain um, just a, a week ago we caught that rain and a little bit of a cooler temperature so around here we're still going to target three to four ton canola yields and they were completely unspoken about years back so it's a big change um, so we're, we're in this area we're still tracking for some pretty good yields thanks for that i'll let you get back to it excellent thank you Graham Sandrell there, who's with the GRDC, uh, talking about uh, this farm at Wallenbean, and also the program generally looking to sort of tap into uh, hyper yields. And uh, uh, we're joined now by Nick Poole, who's with Field Applied Research. She uh, joins us uh, joins us now. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. Now, the program, it's you're talking about this program here, we heard about what some of the stuff that Graham was talking about, you know, canola crops uh, tapping into moisture, uh, seeing yields that were, were really unheard of. And uh, in terms of your background, you started off uh, in, in the west country of England, so, you know, known to be fairly wet there, or maybe, you know, some some ideas from that that uh, transferred, can transfer to, to high rainfall areas in Australia. Yeah, ab- absolutely, Michael, as you can tell by my strong Australian <laughs> accent. Um, I'm a west countryman. And I suppose that initial experience in the UK, whilst only perhaps being applicable to certain areas of uh, Australia, has uh, stood me in good stead. 
I, I, I think what these last three years have done is to actually show just what's possible in in um, not always similar but similar rainfall conditions in terms of what's possible as those upper yields that we could achieve and the region you visit today uh, because this is a national project but the region you you visit today benefits from that high altitude keeps the temperatures down and of course over these last three years we haven't been faced with moisture stress and so uh, perhaps ideally uh, this three-year period that we've just gone through has been ideal to see what the upper end of yield potential is but we have a realization that the three previous years say 2017 to 19 obviously we couldn't expect that kind of productivity so it's been an incredibly fortuitous period for the project and i guess too the other thing is that having that um that extra rainfall uh, you know, a lot of people were saying we, we don't want to waste it we want to preserve it as much as possible and that's what people have tried to do it, 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 exactly and and that requires a different approach in terms of management because turning that water into dollars which is what we're effectively trying to do we've within the hyper yielding project been trying to look at all of the levers in agronomy that make that possible and we have seen that uh, for example varieties from the other side of the world that we thought would have no applicability in this particular region have actually had a sufficient growing season for them to actually excel and show that upper yield of that's, that's possible. So uh, if you would have asked me at the start of this project what would have been the highest yielding, consistently the highest yielding region, I wouldn't have expected it to be Wallenbean. But actually in wheat plots and in canola we've consistently achieved uh, say in the canolas we hit our high spot of six and a half ton in 2021 but with our wheat crops using genetic material from the other side of the globe we've actually found that we've an upper ceiling around 11 tonne a hectare which just blew me away from my first experiences of coming to Australia. And and how does it apply, say, to you know the cropping zones, you know, that where where they are drier, you know? So you you say, okay, you you're not going to have that excess moisture. What can we learn from those these trials? What can we learn from the GRDC programs at looking at like this one? Well, I think that the first thing to say is hyper yielding has been based very much in the high rainfall zone of Australia so its applicability to those lower rainfall zones is actually in the kind of seasons we've just gone through mm. so where we have uh, rainfall that is above the average it's then that the management techniques perhaps not the genetics and the varieties we're using but the management techniques particularly things such as disease management and nutrition actually have to be modified in order to take advantage in those regions where it's typically that much colder. 
uh, wetter. Sorry, drier. Uh, drier. Yeah, that's right. And and I guess the thing is, you can, you, as I say, that whole preservation thing. The, I mean, uh, but is it also uh, what part does climate change play in this? So where you need to be able to adjust things quickly if you you know that the climate's changing and you you get a big dump of rain you get a lot of you uh, three wet years in a row then you might get three dry years in a row how does that sort of apply in that situation i think one of the aspects of the management that's changed over the last 20 years in australia is that uh, when i first came to australia 20 years ago there was an emphasis on closing uh, the gate to the paddock at the five leaf stage if we'd say in cereals very early in the season that's job done I think now what we've found through projects like hyperunion is that we can have much later intervention to take account of uh, a climate that is actually much more variable and that, that so you need to be more flexible you need to be more flexible in order to be more resilient exactly right Michael. Mm. and i guess that that's the that's maybe what we've learned in the last sort of six years seven years i suppose and and the, the big was the, the big uh, peaks and troughs yes and and our job now is to work out from the hyper yielding years with hyper yielding management which parts of that program and strategy travel outwards into seasons as you suggest it might be that bit drier mm. and do you need i mean uh, can you push too far can you use i mean the, you know where you where you're actually going for so much production and so much uh so so, so much productivity that you're actually you know, something's got to give like the soil has to give or you you know you you you, you, you know there's some, some downsides there Yes, there can be, and of course, the, uh, profitability is sustainability. So we always have to be looking at the, the cost structure of the inputs we put into our crops. But what we've actually found within the project, and here with our host farmer Charlie Baldry, is a perfect example: is that we need to have uh, a robust farming system that underpins those high yields so it's it's not always about excessive amounts of fertilizer or excessive amounts of agrochemicals it's it's about having an underpinning farming system that in a more austere year might deliver five or six ton a hectare but can switch on far more easily with fertility and mineralization of your organic matter in those seasons when eight or nine ton is possible mm. and we also heard that people were saying you know uh that uh, they're seeing yields they're seeing production that they never expected and and I, I, are we talking about this sort of area here where we are wallenbean and this sort of high rainfall area, or are we talking about um the whole state of new south wales well, I, I think we have to be guarded in saying how applicable it is because we clearly have cooler temperatures here and these last three years have had softer finishes. So we know that, for example, the varieties that we've used to obtain these 10 and 11 ton yields are not going to be suitable for the whole state of New South Wales. But other aspects of our agronomy and how to feed our crops or protect our crops will be applicable in those better seasons 
in other regions. So there's more widespread uh, learning that can come out of it. Exactly. Mm. exactly. Nick Paul, thanks for joining us on the program today. You're most welcome, Michael. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's coming up to 20 minutes past 12. And uh, the uh, the farmer who's hosting this event, uh, looking at hyper yields, is uh, Charlie Baldry. And he joins us now. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Michael. Welcome to our farm. Yes, indeed. It's a great farm. Things are looking pretty good. Uh, uh, and you, that last lot of rain was uh, really helpful to you. Yeah, look, absolutely. That was... Um you know, we needed that for sure. It's been a, it's been a good season, but that uh, we were looking for that rain absolutely. Mm. Now, how much have you how much have you had this year? You've you haven't you haven't had an average year. You've had less than average. Uh, look at the moment, we've had four seventy up to date, and uh, it's about half what we had last year, and that's a bit over three hundred millimeters in the growing season, which is again about half last year, and we have an average of sort of around that six eighty seven hundred mils in this district. And what's it? What's it mean? What's it meant for production? I mean, you, you you're still looking okay. Yeah, yeah. Look, we are. Um, yeah, I think we're, it's going to be a good year, and there'll be some, uh, yeah, good yields in both canola and wheat. And so, why have you decided to um, host some trials trials on your property? Uh, look, I was approached, and uh, Tim, and yeah, by I think John Kirkegaard had done trials here before, and worked with me, and. Uh, Oh look, it's been an, a, a real privilege for me to have Far and 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 Rowan Brill here. You know, I've learnt a lot talking to those guys one on one. Yeah, throughout the last you know, three years, mm. learned a lot. And I guess that we were talking about how you can um, uh, you, you've had the the benefit of being able to talk one on one with them. I guess, but the the. The idea is to be able to spread that net more widely and help others, you know, the GRDC involved in, you know, the, 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 the whole of Australia and grain growing, really. And you think that that's, you know, there are benefits that are going to spread? Ah, oh, for sure, you know, and, and uh, yeah, you've got to take your hats off the GRDC and the, you know, funded by the growers, of course, mm. or part of it. Um, that this has been a long-term project and they've stuck with it and I think it's, because every year is different, so it's important that we have more of these long-term projects. Um, and look, I, it's, you know, there's a lot of agronomists I've noticed turn up to these field days and so probably more agronomists than farmers and so that uh, spreads the word further afield, I think. So what have, what have you learned or what have you changed maybe in, the, in uh, recent years that, uh, you know, that stands out most to you? Well, I think it really lifted the bar as far as yields go um, and the projects highlighted to me that we, you know, as growers, um, you know, in these good years, we've got a higher potential and we should be striving for, you know, no reason why we can't strive for five tonne of canola and ten tonnes of wheat. We haven't achieved that on a, on a paddock scale yet, but um, but I think that's... So we need to, in those good years, you've got to be prepared to spend the money. So you've got to put the nitrogen out. And then I think you also have got to be not skimp when it comes to other management practices like disease control. And you've got to be proactive too in that area. Um, and I guess they're the key things I've, I've, I've learned. And I guess the other thing too is that, um, you know, it's that whole, you know, boom bust. You want to actually capitalise on the boom so you've got something left over for the bust years, which are going to come. Yeah, no, they will for sure, absolutely. Mm. 
Now, in terms of uh, the other thing I was going to uh, uh, ask you about was pricing. I mean, in terms of, you know, like for wheat pricing, canola pricing, looking pretty good. Wheat pricing particularly, you know, because of the, the sort of drought situation we have in other parts of, of Australia. But so, so that, you know, you want to capitalise on that too, I guess, too, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, look, the last three, four years we've... We've had what often doesn't happen, where you've had good seasons combined with with good prices, um, and you know we're fortunate in this area that um, for different reasons. You know, there was the Ukraine issue last year, and then the, and then and this the drought footing this year. But yeah, for different reasons, isn't it? That's right. That's mm. right. You never right. know what's going to happen. That's it, exactly it. That's why you've got to have a good marketing program, and uh, you know, and we, we we try and do that. You know, we do some hedging and so forth. Of course, mm. the market can go up quickly, but it all goes, can go down quickly. Yeah, yeah, and I guess to the, uh, the like you say, that whole boom bust cycle, and you know, and preserving that moisture mm. to then be able to use it. If you can't use it in all of it in a, in a wet year, saving it for the next wet year when it might be dry, like this that's one. That's right. That's right. And I think farmers generally are getting a lot better at that. And a lot of work that uh, John Kirkgaard did CSIRO over the last. 10 years is you know preserving that moisture for next year's crop particularly over the summer um and you know in a year like this where you know it can be well we thought it was going to be a very tight finish we've been fortunate here with it rain last week but um that 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 good weed management during summer can really pay dividends in a dry finish charlie baldry uh, thanks for joining us and and hosting us on your farm uh, at the country hour thank you welcome Michael. thank you uh, you're listening to the Country Hour and Speak of the Devil, 25 minutes past 12. We're just talking about you then, John Kierkegaard. Your ears must have been burning. We're talking about... Uh, welcome to the program. Uh, again, we have spoken to you on the Country Hour before uh, a number of times over the years. Uh, interesting that what um, Charlie was just saying there about conserving the moisture uh, and, and conserving it from those, you know, those... Two, two extremely wet years and people may be thinking oh well it's, it's we've got too much but you you're always one for conserving the moisture where possible that's right that's right um quite a lot of the water that our crops use in australia to produce yield is water that's stored in the soil and um in order to have that water there you've got to start thinking about the season well before you sow the crop um one of the key um, elements of that is managing that summer fallow period um, farmers in Australia are big adopters of no-till farming, so they generally are retaining the stubble over summer. For that so, reason, to retain the moisture. To retain yep. the moisture, to protect the soil from erosion, uh, so that if any rain falls, any heavy summer rain, it's caught by that stubble, it infiltrates and it's stored. And one of the other lessons we learned was that any weeds, which once upon a time we used to think was a nice green pick for sheep over the summer, those weeds are stealing water that would otherwise be used by the crop. So setting yourself up for the potential for these really big, potentially high yielding crops to do really well is a lot about storing that moisture and particularly storing it deep in the subsoil because if it's deep, the crop's going to find that around about now when it's filling the grain 
and that's really, really highly valuable. If the rain that came last week doesn't come, you might have 30 or 40 millimetres stored in that subsoil, and that's just absolutely critical for these high-yielding crops. And also when you're saying, you know, it's in the wetter areas and uh, other areas not not faring as well, I think we were talking about the figures about 40% of the crops in New South Wales were struggling. So, you know, you, you want to have that advantage, that marketing and the production advantage too, if you can. If you can, So if you're conserving the moisture and you're going to have uh, bigger health your crops as a result of that that'll put you in a better place absolutely that that soil moisture that you're storing is money in the bank um, it's already there you're not going to lose that um, and as well as the moisture you're also storing nitrogen so so nitrogen is a really big um, part of the picture here and uh, if you uh, get summer rain and you control the weeds they're not going to be stealing the nitrogen either so whether the season turns out to be wet or dry or or, or, or average, there's always either a water or a nitrogen, be- nitrogen benefit to be had. If it's a wet year, the nitrogen's going to be a benefit. If it's a dry year, the water and, in, and everything in between. So it's, it's been a real lesson to, to, to set ourselves up well for these potentially high-yielding crops. And for you, in, as a researcher, having seen the two or three, two, two, two sort of th- really sev- severely wet years, to, to come in and then have a, a year that's not wet, that's generally dry in many places, that must be pretty important and interesting for you to be able to then test what you think to be the case. Yeah, sadly I'm old enough to remember whole wet decades and whole dry mm, decades. Mm, and yeah, it's true yeah, that um, right. you know, there's, there's sometimes whole groups of young agronomists who've not experienced either a wet year or a dry year, and we can sometimes forget the lessons. Um, but it's, it's why growers um, have to have this flexible approach. They have to have a management system that can adapt as the season unfolds. They have to have different options on their farm so that something will always be, be profitable. Um, and, and yes, so, so this year, um, you know, we may be going into a dry spell and next year may follow. So all of the lessons we learnt back in the droughts of 1819, um, of, uh, two droughts back to back, they may come to the fore again. But in the end, it's all about managing those big levers of water and nitrogen and, and managing them in a cost-effective way. I, I asked a question earlier of Nick Poole, too, about you know, going too far, you know, going, going for too much production and, and, and your land suffers as a result, the soil suffers as a result. You, 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 you lose too much by pushing too hard. Look, I think, fortunately, Australian farmers are, are smart. They, they want to look after their land, and if anything we have to encourage them to use more inputs not less so we don't suffer like Europe and North America from the overuse of inputs if anything we suffer from farmers being very cautious and sometimes missing that upside and I think this hyper yielding project has really brought that to the fore because obviously to support these higher yields we do need those inputs and Sometimes more is lost by not applying the inputs than is, than is um, than lost by perhaps having a little too much in one season or another. And, and I think it's important to look at these things over a number of seasons because um, many, of those, many of those inputs will, will remain in the soil and can be picked up by subsequent crops. And you think the sort of research you're seeing here and you're helping out with here with GRDC and elsewhere um, um, easily convertible or transportable to, to other farms throughout New South Wales and Australia? Yeah, look, the important thing is we have farmers and advisors involved in the research right from the word go. So we don't have to, 
we don't have to have a big um, push to get the message out. The message is there from the start because they have told us what they would like to see and we're answering questions that they've come to us with. So that's, uh, the, FAR, the FAR team have sort of set this up in that way and, and that's by far the most effective way to have research happening. John, thanks for joining us on the program today. You're welcome. Thank John Kierkegaard from CSIRO here at uh, on the farm at uh, Wallenbeam for this uh, hyper-yielding field day. Uh, we, we, um, I should say, Michael, we've got a bit of a crowd watching here and they're probably <laughs> wondering why I'm standing right behind you. It's an unusual way to uh, to do a broadcast. I'm just trying a bit to bit of wind? Yeah, trying to, well no I don't, but um, I'm trying to <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to block the wind with with uh, my height, so it's right. a bit of an unusual way of doing a broad- broadcast today. Yeah, yes, no, it's all it's all, it's all in the uh, it's all in the process of the best production we can possibly do. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the idea. Let's go to some news headlines now, because Adam's story's here, no doubt. I a think. nice weatherproof studio yeah. here, I can assure you. There's, uh, no, issues, you. No, issues, you. no issues with wind so <laughs> right. far. Okay. Yep. okay, good. All right. Uh, in the news today, obviously uh, Israel uh, remains at the uh, top of the list. Uh, it's uh, Israel has now cut uh, food supplies to Gaza and um, Hamas is now threatening to start killing hostages if uh, Israel starts uh, bombing buildings uh, without warning. Um, the, uh, there's, it's uh, sort of uh, hit home a bit too with uh, the protest last night down at the Sydney Opera House uh, drawing condemnation. Uh, a lot of people saying it shouldn't have gone ahead on the route that it did. It basically started at Sydney Town Hall and ended at the Opera House. Uh, that was because the Opera House was lit uh, in the colours of the Israeli flag. Now, there's been criticism of the uh, protest being held at the Opera House as well, but the City Lord Mayor has also criticised uh, the decision to uh, light the Opera House in the colours of the Israeli flag, uh, saying... Uh, that uh, basically shouldn't be picking sides in this uh, situation. Now, um, there has been uh, condemnation from the federal opposition leader. The Premier, Chris Minns, has described the scene as horrible, while the former ambassador to Israel and former Liberal MP Dave Sharma says comments that were made at the rally were despicable. Now, the State Attorney-General has said uh, suggested that everyone stay home and that the no protests occur, and I think the Premier, Chris Minns, has... Uh, basically uh, gone against that and basically said, well, you know, you, you have a right to protest no matter what, what side you're on as long as it's, uh, things don't get out of control. In other news, uh, the state government plans to let people caught with small amounts of illicit drugs pay a fine instead of going to court. A new bill's being introduced to Parliament today which would allow people to exercise discretion in choosing whether someone is caught with a small amount of drugs and can avoid the legal system. And the competition regulators approved a consortium's acquisition acquisition of power and gas company Origin Energy. They do have some concerns about the impact on competitions, but it's granted authorisations with conditions for the acquisition by Brookfield and Mid-Ocean. And sorry to end on such a boring story there, Michael, but (laughs) (laughs) these crazy times is the best I can do. How's the wind? Yeah, no, I can it's, hear it. It's, it's pretty windy here. Yeah. No, it's, uh, look, it's actually not mm. too bad, but it's just 
it uh, it's accentuated by the uh, by the uh, microphone, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> not, it's not too bad. By the, it's, it's it's right. the it's cheap actually, ABC, actually, by the cheap ABC microphone. <laughs> it's, it's actually a glorious day here, and the crops are looking amazing. So um, yeah, but right. uh, it's not like that throughout the rest of the state. A lot of parts are uh, pretty dry yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be uh, we're on the Wallaby for the next couple of days, so we'll uh, oh, okay. talk, talk to talk to you tomorrow. We'll be back. Uh, yeah, we're in. Uh, Tomorrow in Wagga, we're talking ag tech and ag technology, a conference there, and then uh, then we're going to be in Condoblin, so see how things are faring over there. Not as not as good as here, I, I suspect. Mm, mm. Mm. All right, but you'll be you'll be listening, no doubt. Oh, as always, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be listening to your one o'clock. I'll be there. All right, Sorry. thanks, Adam. Adam's story there with the news headlines. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. And Gabrielle Woodhouse is there. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you? Very well. It's a glorious day here in Wallenbeen. Fantastic, yeah. Not too hot. Nice and a little bit of wind, but not a beautiful sunny. Not a cloud in the sky. They had some rain last week, which helped their crops. So, yeah. Just wondering, is there any rain around the state at the moment at all? Anything? Look, there is a little bit. Um, so up over the northern parts of the inland, out towards Burke, is where we're seeing a few showers at the moment. But uh, rainfall totals have been relatively light, um, of the order of a couple of millimetres. So since 9 o'clock this morning, uh, 2 millimetres at Delta. Um, and in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, some of the highest falls uh, was just under 17 millimetres at a place called um, Kalnamurti, um out in the far northwest of the state. So White Cliffs, 15 millimetres. So there's a little bit of rain um, in these showers and storms that we're seeing up over the far northern inland, but um, they will start to weaken overnight tonight and clear. So um, for the coastal areas of New South Wales, still looking at the chance of a light shower or two, but um, they'll start to contract up towards the, the northern coast uh, tonight. Right, so didn't, they didn't get any round Moree or um, Liverpool Plains from this system coming across? No, um, the, the system's just a little bit too far west, so it's been really uh, quite quite a far way west um, over, over inland New South Wales. Um, it doesn't look likely that it's going to um, spread in towards the, the northern slopes and, and plains there. Um, it's looking like over the next few days it's still going to remain dry in that pocket of the world, but we will be seeing a cold front that's going to move across the region, and it's going to be a fairly significant front. So on Thursday we are looking at quite warm and windy conditions, and, and that's going to be leading to some elevated fire danger including across parts of the central west and even through the Hunter as well. So um, warm and windy and behind that we'll see conditions cool but it does look as though it's going to bring some uh, gusty showers and thunderstorms with it. So rainfall totals at the moment look as though they're going to remain quite light and generally across the southern half of the state. Um, It looks as though uh, across parts of the southern slopes, um, particularly south of about Gundagai or or Chimut, we could be seeing 5 or 10 millimetres but uh, for the most part a few millimetres is what we're looking at. Right, okay, and a drop in temperature, but yeah, so not not a a whole heap of rain. And um, uh, looking further ahead, is there another change on the way after that? Look, in in the longer term, it looks as though we'll still see a few showers down around the southern slopes there, maybe one or two along the coast, but rainfall totals are going to remain quite light. Um, It does seem as though um, the topic is going to be conditions cooling down a fair bit more. So by Monday next week, we'll see another front that's going to come through um, that's going to make uh, those cool conditions persist. Um, So those maximum temperatures in particular will be hovering down into the high teens, particularly across the the southern parts of the state. Um, And with that, a few showers around the south, but again, Rainfall totals don't look as though they're going to be um, of any significance, a few millimetres at best at this stage. Okay, yeah, yeah, probably a few of the croppers wouldn't mind a little bit more of a drink, but uh, it doesn't sound like there's going to be too much in it. 
No, unfortunately, it doesn't look as though we've got um, the same sort of setup that we did last week to get a, a nice uh, bit of rain. Um, we can only hope that one day we will get a little bit more. That's right, indeed. All right, in, and in time, and but not during harvest. Okay, thanks for that, Gabrielle. My pleasure. Gabrielle Woodhouse at the Bureau there. It's uh, coming up to 20 minutes to one here at... Uh, uh, broadcast, country are broadcasting from a farm near Wallenbean and um, Tim Fuchs. We're joined now by um, Chris Duff. Absolutely, Chris. Uh, Chris Duff is a um, farm advisor based in Young, but uh, obviously has a large patch to cover. Um, Chris, you were just telling me um, a moment ago about the rain last week and what it means for farmers around the area. Yes, thanks, uh, Tim. Certainly around the immediate district of Harden, Cootamundra and Young, there's between 30 to 45 millimetres. On the wider than that, there's probably be anywhere between 10 to 30 millimetres, and for each of those districts, it'll mean tens of millions of dollars added to the bottom line. So how were things looking prior to that rain last week? Things were holding up surprisingly well, given that we, were, we are well below average for in-crop rainfall. Uh, certainly, we came into the season with a 100% moisture profile, which is not common, so that has really kept us in the game. And for southern New South Wales, things were just starting to probably go past, just starting to that tipping point. But uh, certainly yield potential was there, but we lost a little bit. But the rain from last week was a complete game changer for the medium to high rainfall zone particularly. Tens of millions of dollars. I mean, that's, that's a big turnaround for many, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. Whilst the yield potential was there, our concern was that as we head in the last four weeks of our growing season and five to six weeks for wheat, that uh, what was looking very good would probably go off quite quickly as we started to deplete the soil moisture profile. I was uh, talking to a farmer up near Cowra, uh, would have been three or four weeks ago, who said, yeah, an inch inch of rain would be perfect and uh, great timing, uh, and that the canola was flowering a lot longer this, this, this year. The, um, the flowers came out a lot earlier. Still quite a bit of canola around here that's in flower at the moment. So in terms of the program for harvest, uh, what happens around this part of the state? Yeah, so certainly at the present time, the canola that's flowering now are our dual-purpose grazing canola varieties. For most of our, our main season canola varieties, they're probably about four weeks to five weeks away from windrowing. So that'll kick off in earnest in early November. Okay, and the rain last week will now look at an above-average yield, do you think? I uh, don't think we'd be game enough to say that just yet, but certainly... Uh, we, we think we're probably in the realm of having a good average harvest. There will be some crops that will be probably better than that, but certainly uh, it has cemented what, could be, what was a concerning season out to a very good season. And as an agronomist, when you get involved in a program like is being run on this property, we're here at the field day for the hyper crop trial, as an agronomist, how involved are you in this? So certainly uh, we've been involved with uh, John Kierkegaard and Nick Poole and his team for many years and, and as John had mentioned in his uh, talk that they always involve uh, advisors and farmers from the outset with their projects and we think that has certainly the collaboration that uh, these groups and these people have, uh, the researchers with the whole of industry has, has made up for a much more beneficial outcome for all concerned. So what happens then, you you then try and spread the word? Is that the idea to sort of, so, uh, you know, you might have access to quite a number more farmers and give them, you know, the, the good oil? So certainly, uh, Michael, our role as advisors is to uh, pick out those pieces of information and important data that comes out of this uh, research and then see how it particularly works for each particular farmer. They're not all the same, so you have to pick and choose where that is, but you take out the core principles of the research and then try to apply it to your 
clients, and the, but as an advisory group, we also spread that across the uh, team of advisors um, in each region. Now, and you you cast your net uh, fairly widely across the state. I mean, uh, you know. How thirsty are farmers for knowledge, you know, to, to learn, to improve uh, productivity? Or are there still a few there that are sort of stuck in there? We've always done it this way. We'll continue to do it that way. We're not going to change. I think in the main, farming is still a very, is, is a progressive industry. Certainly uh, no one stands still. The old line of the ground's always moving beneath our feet means that they're, they're up. They're open for change. If there's information and data there, that means that they can have a gain one way or another on their particular farm. Most farmers are very uh, accepting of that and, and are quite thirsty for that knowledge. Mm, so they're not sort of stuck in the mud. Because we used to hear, you know, that people you know, have set ideas about, you know, the program has to be, and I think John Kirkegaard was talking about it there, you know, the program has to be done by this time and, there, you know, there's certain, you know, set the calendar. That doesn't happen. That's, we, we need to be more adaptive. I think uh, in the main, farmers are fairly adaptive. We, we certainly are very uh, conscious about timing. Particular operations need to be done on time. There's a lot of money to be gained or lost if we, if we miss those timings. So it's a combination of that and the skill set, but also with that knowledge to know what you need to manipulate from one season to the next. Um, and this research is probably another layer of that next level of information that will help us with our program going forward. To sort of tap into the extra you know, that, that extra 10 or 20% that can make a big, big difference. Correct. And certainly with the project between wheat and the canola, there's probably different outcomes with each crop. But certainly there's uh, some gains there that can be probably had for, for most growers in that uh, high to medium rainfall zones because of the key things that have come out of this particular project. Chris Duff, uh, appreciate your time on the Country Hour today. Pleasure. Thank you, Michael. It's uh, coming up to a quarter to one, and uh, we were talking about uh, some uh, younger farmers, and <laughs> we've got one now. Broden Holland, hello. How are you going? Thanks for having me. Good, thank you. Now, you're from around around the area here? Yeah, so we're about uh, 70 k's away west of Young. Yeah. Right, you know. What are you growing at the moment? Uh, some wheat, canola, uh, trying some faba beans, and yeah, a bit of loosen still. Trialling some f- faba beans, are you? Yeah, we've uh, just put in 90, 100 hectares this year, so see how they go, see if we like them, see if they yield. How's it looking? Um, yeah, things look good. The, the favours look quite good. The wind knocked them around a little bit, but no, home looks really good at the moment, and uh, that rain was a bit of a saving grace, but we're happy. Yeah, I bet. How much rain did you get? Uh, about between 30 and 34. Yeah. Okay. And how much has that uh, meant for you in terms of uh, this time, pre-harvest, getting ready, everything's ready ready to go, but that kind of rainfall at that time of year? Yeah, I mean, we we're always still probably going to have a okay year, um, regardless of the rain, but... Um, yeah, this just puts a bit of the icing on the cake. Um, I think the heat probably knocked us around a little bit, but we're, we're happy. We won't complain at all. It's, um, yeah, things look good, and we'll get enough to go again next year. So better than average year, you think? Just, I'd say, yeah. yeah. Just. Yep. Mm. Um, probably depends how the like, next couple of weeks go, but I think we'll be pretty close to a bit above average. But, um, yeah, you know, we've done our part, so we'll just leave it up to the gods. Yeah, right, OK, because so you don't want another dump of rain during harvest or something like just that. Just don't want a hail, mm. yeah. Or a hail, yeah, 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 good point, yeah. And um, uh, coming to field days like this one, what do you learn? Like, you know, what, what's nuts and bolts or what changes when you sort of, uh, you know, hear what uh, some of the experts or some of the farmers that have been doing this sort of stuff for a while, what are you, what are you learning, what are you changing? I uh, came to this far event when it started and... Um, you know, I was sort of a bit blown away or a bit uh, 
you know, didn't think we could do this at home, but we've taken a few of the learnings from here and taken them home and it's been unreal what, what this type of work has um, enabled us to do at home and, you know, going forward we'll keep keep learning from what they do here and um, we'll just keep trying to trying to do do our best. Right, so you, you don't think it's just sort of a bunch of uh, people that are sort of theoretical or, you know, scientists that are sort of trying things, throwing things out there and it actually works in a practical sense? No, 100%. It's, um, you know, a lot of the people here that do the research are actual growers themselves and apply it on their own farms. So, you know, if, I think the more people that can get out and do this type of stuff on their own farms gets the word out and, you know, we just need to keep these types of things going. And translatable to the to the, to, to the everyday farmer? For sure. I, I think you just got to bring it back to your, your case, your scenario, but um, there's definitely gains to be had wherever you are and, um, you know, if, if you're always listening, always learning, you're always going to be improving. So I think the worst thing to do is just sit in your corner and not listen to anyone. And the, uh, we're, John Kirkyard and some of the other um, uh, agronomists were talking about, you know, saving as much moisture, you're putting in, uh, you know, you're doing it at your place, you're trying to, you're putting in new practices to try and save moisture and save it for a, a not-so-rainy day? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I keep saying we don't probably need too much more rain from now on, but at the end of the day, if we get rain now, it's it's yield for next year, so we won't wish it away at all. And yeah, summer weed management is, is key. Um, 10 mils can mean the difference between a crop and not, so it's a big difference. So you're a, half, you're a, you're a sort of glass half full kind of guy? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Broden uh, Holland, uh, appreciate your time on the Country Hour today. Thank you. It's coming up to uh, 10 minutes to 1 on the Country Hour. Well, uh, we've got to go to some other news now. Uh, it's been two weeks now since the switch from trying to eradicate the varroa mite to managing the pest, and Tumut Beekeeper... John Casey uh, has had more than 2,000 hives in the almond orchard where the varroa was detected uh, in Uroli and has made the difficult decision to leave them behind for voluntary euthanasia. Mr Casey told Emily Doak that he's lost a quarter of his hives and it's going to have a big impact on his business. I already had 6,000 hives where we were clean and had no, no varroa, so I didn't want to take the other 2,016 and investigate the whole lot of them. So uh, just give me a little bit of a, an indication. How much of, of your total hive production does that 2,000 hives account for? Um, those 2,016 were honey hives, so I'm not sure exactly how much, how many kilos were lost, lost off them, but a fair bit. I've had to um, put a, uh, a couple of workers off because I lost that many hives, and yeah, they say it's sort of about the 500 hives per person so I would have lost had to lose four workers. At this stage you've made this difficult decision that you didn't want to risk infecting the rest of your hives and so you've left them there. Do you know what's happened to them at the moment? At the moment I don't think they've had the manpower to do anything with them. They're still sitting there. They um, would be almost destroyed themselves anyway by killing each other and um, swarming and yeah, just no one's looking after you. You can't leave hives, any beehives anywhere and not look after them. They'll just um, deteriorate and die. So as a beekeeper, how do you feel about that? Uh, not real good, but there's nothing else I can do. I've got, you know, like if I bring them home and infect the whole lot, the rest of them I've got there, the other 6,000, I'd be in a bigger mess when we ain't got 
in Australia yet the right resources to go yet to um, treat the hives. And in terms of um, making that decision, um, are you aware yet what sort of compensation that you'll be offered um, in terms of the, the loss of those 2,000 hives? Not really, or just in the process of doing it. It's a little bit confusing because you sort of can't work out exactly what they were. Anyway, at the moment, we're, as we speak, we're filling out the forms and going from there. Having been caught up in this, what's your assessment of how the management of this pest has, has played out in terms of your business and the impact it's had? Yeah, 100%. It's infected the business. It will affect all business. And I think it'll take a lot of beekeepers away. They won't, they won't have bees because they'll be too hard to look after. That's John Casey, who's a Tumut beekeeper. 2,000 hives, uh, he's made the difficult decision to get them euthanised. You're listening to The Country Hour, broadcasting from Wallenbean. And uh, just before we go to markets, Tim Fuchs, uh, where uh, we've got the Wagga Ag Tech uh, conference on tomorrow, but then we're going to uh, Condoblin yeah, after that, you we, and I. we will be apart for a day and then reunite <laughs> in, uh, well, the central west, western New South Wales, where, as, as you mentioned before, they're doing it a bit tougher than here, well and truly. So... Uh, yeah, there's a um, rural women and uh, and uh, youth and ag conference, so we'll find out what's been discussed and uh, also have a look at the local conditions as well. Absolutely, and yeah, that will be a key. Having been here and seen, they're they're pretty happy with how things are going, and uh, it's not uh, that uh, that is not the situation right around the state or in the north of the state either as well. Yeah. yeah so we'll be talking about that as well. Thanks for that, Tim. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, time to go to markets. First up, Wanunga cattle. Good afternoon. 1,386 cattle were offered to the usual group of spring buyers. However, there were very few feeder orders in the market. There was a real uptick in quality with good numbers to suit trade and export processes. Supply again today outstripped demand with cattle under 500 kilos discounted heavily. Field quality was exceptional and prices fell 50 to 70 cents. Odd sales more, 155 to 299. Trade steers were back 50 cents, 180 to 248. Feeder steers medium weight, 150 to 210. Trade heifers were down 20, 175 to 190. Heavy steers also back 20, 180 to 233. Bullock steers 10, 210 to 236. Heavy cows gained 6 cents, 162 to 190. The middle run alina types, 115 to 170. And bulls were back 20 cents, 162 to 190. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Let's go to Forbes Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped this sale with Agents Yarding, 39,550 head. There was 26,450 lambs penned and quality was similar to that of previous sales with good numbers of trade and heavyweight lambs penned along with a planer and secondary lines. The usual bars are present and competing in a firm Badira market. There were 7,500 new season lambs and most were fresh though some are beginning to show signs of dryness. Prices lifted three to four dollars a head, with trade weight lambs selling from ninety-three to one hundred and seven dollars a head. Heavy lambs, twenty-four to twenty-six kilos, ranged in price from one sixteen to one hundred and thirty-three. While the few extra heavyweights sold from one thirty-one to 
top of $148 a head. Old lambs followed a similar trend, lifting five to six dollars a head. Trade weight 22, 20 to 24 kilo, selling from 86 to 110, 24 to 26 kilo, receiving from 100 to 118. While heavy lambs over 26 kilo sold from 113 to a top of $173 a head. The balance of the lambs and 13,100 head of mutton are still to be sold. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Let's go to Carcor Cattle. Numbers lifted by 550 for a yarding of 1,483. It was only a fair quality yarding with very few young cattle to suit the processes and there were limited numbers to suit the feeders. There were odd lots of well-finished grass teas and heifers and there were 450 mixed cows yarded. Young cattle of the trade were 15 cents cheaper with the prime vealers selling to 195. Prime yearlings sold from 115 to 235. Feeder steers and lighter feeder heifers were 7 to 12 cents dearer, while the heavier feeder heifers were up to 25 cents cheaper. Feeder steers sold from 150 to 220, while the feeder heifers sold from 110 to 194. Grass steers and heifers were 15 to 35 cents cheaper, with the prime ground steers selling from 160 to 215. Prime ground heifers sold from 155 to 202. Cows were 20 to 30 cents dearer with the two and three scores selling from 30 to 157. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 145 to 183 to average 169. Heavy bull sold to 170. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. Two Gunnedar cattle now. Good afternoon. A small reduction in numbers to 1370 head. A good supply of yearlings with cows and growing cattle in fair supply. Quality was mostly good. Condition was fair to good. The usual buyers in attendance and extra player in the heavy trade market. Lightweight yearlings tears sold a dear trends for the most part, posting strong gains in places, 180 to 238 cents a kilo for sea mussels. Medium and heavyweights were generally dearer, 160 to 245. Heavy trade posted strong gains, 218 to 245 cents. An odd dearer sale in the medium and heavy yielding heifers to feed, 160 to 215. Light and medium weights to restockers, 145 to 178 cents for sea mussels. Heavy trade was slightly dearer, 176 to 230. Heavy steers to process, 190 to 258 cents were much dearer. As were the ground heifers with three score sea mussels 180 to 206. Dearer trends in the cow market with two score medium weights 100 to 139. Heavy three and four scores 142 to 178 cents a kilo. James Armitage from LA in Canada. Inverell cattle. Good afternoon. Inverell pen 1286 mixed quality cattle similar to numbers to last sale. Most processors operated with other regular buyers intending to compete on restocker and feeder orders. Light steer wieners sold for cheaper trends to restockers 128 to 196. A large draft of lightweight plain heifers selling to 29 cents better 138 to 160 to restock our interests. Light yearling steers to the paddock were dearer by 8 cents 168 to 208. Feeder steers were generally cheaper, quality affected 160 to 238. Exceptions were on the heavyweight feeders which were 11 cents better 234 to 240. Heavy heifers to feed sold a solid competition 210 to 218. Processing heifers considerably dearer, 162 to 200 cents a kilo. Growing heifers to process 14 cents a kilo better, 124 to 172. Medium cows to a dearer trend of 18 cents, 80 to 136. Heavy cows significantly dearer, 154 to 174. Stephen Adams, MLA at Inverell. And last but not least, scone cattle. 
Good afternoon. Numbers decreased by 191 as Scone agents yarded 681 fair to good quality cattle. There were larger runs of well-bred yearlings off the crop suitable for the lot feeders. A smaller contingent of weaners on offer, mainly heifers, whilst the cow numbers were back considerably to yard around 57 head. Not all the regular processing buying group at the rail, whilst restocking orders were a little more active after last week's rain event. Market trend varied throughout. Few light weaner steers on offer, trending marginally cheaper, 130 to 218. Medium weights faring better, 114 to 218. Light weaner heifers dearer by 10, 80 to 174. Medium weights to restockers jump 50, 106 to 166. Over 400 kilo yearling steers to lot feeders off the pace by 16, 168 to 216. Whilst limited numbers to process considerably dearer, 266 to 278. Well bred big lines of yearling heifers over 330 kilos to feed dearer by 18, 100 to 160. Whilst the best bee muscle calf the local butchers made to 300. Limited numbers of light and medium white cow saw processors and lot feeders clashing to show a dearer sentiment 70 to 156 whilst heavy cows dearer by 8 135 to 184 and the best heavy bee muscle bull made 200 cents angus barlow for mla at scone you're listening to the country hour it's time for the news